What's going on, everybody? Jason Frosto for TennisUnleashed.net, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Breaking Point, where we're going to get into the week's events, especially Toronto this week, right? That was the Masters 1000, where Yannick Sinner won his first ever title. And we're going to break down some match play, talk about some stats, why people won or lost. And we're also this week going to talk about a lot of the upsets that occurred in the event. So we had a ton of upsets that occurred at Toronto this last week which speaks to a lot of the parity in the game and how people really don't have holes in their games these days. You know, if you go back to the 80s or 90s or the 2000s, a lot of players had visible holes in their games where you knew you could isolate a specific side and get away with things on that side or play there if you had nowhere else to go or you want to stay away from their weapons. But now everybody's so strong across the tour that you really can't do that as a primary strategy. So you got a chance to watch a lot of matches this week, right? And there was a ton of upsets as we talked about. One of the biggest upsets that I saw early on, right, was Mackie McDonald versus Andre Rublev. So anytime you've got an unseeded player taking out a seed early on in the tournament, especially straight sets, that's considered an upset. But if we dive deep into the numbers a little bit, right, we're going to notice that Rublev actually didn't perform as well in this match as Mackie did, right? So if you look at the numbers specifically, we've got winners, 15 for Rublev, 16 for McDonald, unforced errors, 26 for Rublev, 27 for McDonald, net points won and lost, 12 for 15 for McDonald, 4 out of 5 for Rublev, so both strong at the net. One of the biggest things that was ineffective for Rublev was just the fact that he only served 40% of his first serves in this match. And if you're just serving 40% in, and you're hitting a lot of second serves, right? That gives McDonald a chance to kind of feast on your second serve over and over again and attack. And one thing that Mackie did really well in this match is he had pretty even speeds between his forehand and his backhand, right? 119 kilometers an hour on the forehand average speed, 113 on the backhand side, where Rublev a lot more mismatched, a lot bigger on the forehand, 127 and 103 on the backhand. So we know Rublev's going to do a lot of his damage and really hurt you with the forehand side, but the backhand's not as big of a consistent weapon, right? With Mackie, he was hitting a lot of penetrating backhands on top of those really good forehands, and that allowed him to do damage on both sides instead of on just one side like Rublev was primarily doing with his forehand. Another thing I saw McDonald willing to do in this match that you don't see a lot of players willing to do on the American side these days is he played a lot of defense, dropped back further in the court, got himself back into like the deeper part of zone four or zone five, and really pushed himself back in the court and wasn't just trying to stay on top of the baseline the entire time. And he did a good job of playing defense when he needed to. So that's really important too. And if we look at some stats for that, right from the numbers from the ATP, right? If you look at the steal percentages, 32% steals for McDonald, which is basically countering or counters. It's when you get behind in the point and you're able to come back and win a point from a position where they consider you not being able to win a point. It's very similar to counter stats that I use when I do deep dive analysis in matches. And then Rublev, 25% on steals. And I don't expect Rublev to be somebody who gets a lot of steals and conversions on defense because no offense to Andre, but I don't consider him to be a great defensive player and somebody who defends really well against someone else. He's just not that type of player or that style of player to me. But, you know, everyone has different opinions on that. I just don't find Rublev to be an amazing defender. And then we talked about with Rublev, right? Only 40% of first serves are made. And if you look at the stats from Tennis TV, right, ATP Tour, we can see shot quality, right? And quality of ball is important, whether it's on your serve, it's on forehands, it's on backhands or return of serves. ATP keeps track of these stats. And what we see for Mackey is 7.8 on the serve category compared to 6.8 for Rublev, so a one-point advantage, which is significant on a 10 scale. And the Tour average is 7.5, so McDonald is above the Tour average. 
and Rublev was below the tour average when it comes to serving. And we just look at those return numbers a little bit. McDonald was actually behind Rublev on the return stats, 6.5 versus 7. And then ground strokes, right? This is where McDonald had a little bit more of a significant advantage. It was razor thin, but just a little advantage. Forehand 7.5 to 7.4, and then backhand 7.2 to 7. But I was really impressed by McDonald's ability to drop back and play defense when he needed to. He was also very aggressive. He hits through the court very well. But his steal score, right, he's plus 7% in the steal category compared to Rublev, which is a significant difference if we're looking at defensive skills. So that's an area Rublev just could have been better at. The second big upset of the tournament that I got to watch earlier in the week was Marcos Giron versus Holger Runa. This match was very well played. I think Runa was very, very frustrated. And court speed played a big part in some of these upsets this week. A lot of people had commented about the courts being really slow and or the balls being really slow. To me, on television, you could see we had a ton of extended rallies in this week's tournament. You could just see the points were going on longer than they normally would. And it looked like a lot of players were hitting balls where they expected to finish the point with the shot. And they were doing damage, but it wasn't enough to end the point. They might have to hit two or three incredible shots on this surface versus other surfaces that they played, you know, just recently at Wimbledon, right? They may instantly end the point. They weren't having that success here. I think Giron was able to take advantage of that and play very, very well and still hit through the court. If you look at the stats for this match, right? Winners, uh, Marcos, 24. Unforced errors, 29. Holger with 33 winners and 50 unforced errors. So he was having a heck of a time controlling himself and keeping his errors down in this match was really, really critical. If you look just at the forehand backhand splits, right? Uh, Marcos with 15 of those winners on the forehand side, three on the backhand side, and six on the serve. And then if we just look at the splits for Holger, 19 on the forehand side, eight on the backhand side, six on the serve. If we dive a little bit deeper in this, we can see that Giron served 48% first serves in, which is pretty low. Holger was at 58%, so served better on the first serve as far as getting them in the box. But Giron won 79% of his first serves while Holger only won 63% of his first service points. And then if we look at average MPH on the ground strokes, it was pretty even for these guys. We had Giron with just a slight edge on the forehand at 117 kilometers an hour and 103 on his backhand. And then Ruta was at 115 and 103 on his backhand. So speed for speed wise, it was pretty close. And then again, if we look at the attacking and defensive stats in this match, we look at Giron, right, hitting 36% on the steel side, aka counters, right, coming back from a position of defense where you probably shouldn't come back, but you make a great comeback. So he's able to defend better than Runa, who is known to play very good defense. Runa was just at 31% for his steel conversions in this match, which is a pretty good percentage, but he still was behind Giron. And then if we look at the attacking, right, Runa was actually the favorite on the attacking side with 25% attacking with Giron at 24%. And again, I watched this match a ton. And one thing that's really impressed me, and maybe it's the Carousel effect, right? Because Carew has such an incredible backhand. If you've seen any of their content on YouTube, you know, My Tennis HQ, the guy has a really good backhand. And I'm wondering if any of that is affected or has been able to be coached on to Marcos because you can see there's a huge effect on that backhand side. So if you look at the insights a little bit, look at this closer. On the server, it was 7 to 6.6 .6 Giron. Return of serve, 6.7 to Marcos, 6.2 for Holger, which is pretty low. And then if we look at the forehand, 6.5 and 6.6 .6 for Ruta. And then the backhand greatly favored Giron at 7.8 for shot quality versus 7.3 for Ruta. And 7.3 for Ruta is good, 
but Giron was very, very solid on his backhand side. And as I was watching this match, I noticed again, the defensive skills from Giron, the ability to attack. Runa looked like he just couldn't finish points against Marcos, which was really interesting. And I've noticed the quality pop off and really go through the roof with Giron's backhand over probably the last six months to 12 months. If you look at match footage of him from a year ago or two years ago, the backhand really was not a weapon. And he's definitely doing a better job on that backhand side. And it really increased the quality of ball that he's producing on a consistent basis. So that's a credit to his team. And I'm sure Crew has some effect on that backhand side since he's so strong on his backhand himself. So now we're going to get into the next match upset, right? And this you kind of expected in some ways. I got to watch this match in full. Felix Auger Aliassime versus Max Purcell. And Purcell actually led the head-to-head -head in this match 1-0 coming into this match. So I guess in that way, it wasn't truly an upset. But if you look at the seeding of the event, right? Obviously, Ali Asim is expected to win, even though he's having a pretty tough year at this point and not producing the results that you expect someone of his seeding to produce. He had a really good fall last year. And then actually, I made a video on his backhand and the flaws in his backhand technique back in December and posted into December. And what happened was that video got a few thousand views, right? And I passed it on to his coaching team, pointing out these defects. And I'm sure if you're an opponent scouting him and you're playing him in a draw, you're looking for anything you can find on an opponent. And I'm sure some opponents of his came across that video and were able to see, hey, this guy isn't really solid on the backhand side and I can take advantage of that. So let's go ahead and let's pick on that backhand and make him do something to me with that shot. And unfortunately for Felix, the timing of that release was in December. That's the off-season for players and really the end of the off-season for them a few weeks before that. So making any technical changes for 2023 really is impossible at that time of the year. It's just a tough time to make changes. You really probably aren't going to make them. So his team was incapable of doing it at that time. And he's really suffered in 2023. Unfortunately, I think he's a great guy, fabulous player, but he's really, really suffered because of his backhand quality of ball in 2023. So let's just look at the stats for this a little bit, right? We can see for the winner category, Felix at 20 winners total, 15 of those being on the forehand side, zero, a whopping zero on the backhand side. Five of those were on the serve. He had 29 unforced errors. And then for Purcell, the numbers are pretty even across the board. Six on the forehand, two on the backhand, eight on the serve, so eight aces, and just 13 unforced errors. So he was plus three overall in that category. And then if we just look at the first serve stats, right, we can see 54% first serves in for Felix winning 77% of those. And for Purcell, it was 62% in winning 90% of those. On second serves, Felix got 43% of those service points winning just under 50%. And when Purcell was making a second serve, he was at 63% points won, right? Looking at average speeds, Felix really cranking the forehand. This is something we see when guys typically have a significantly weaker backhand is the miles per hour or the kilometers per hour really favor one shot or the other. In this case, it's the forehand. Felix at 123 kilometers an hour average in this match with 105 on the backhand, so plus 18 to his forehand side. Purcell 112 on the forehand, so quite a bit less MPH and 108 on the backhand, so just a little bit more even, right? So he's kind of able to do things off of both sides. And if we just look at these serve stats a little bit, right, as far as quality of ball, 8.6 for Purcell, 7.3 for Felix. Return to serve, 7.2 to Purcell, 5.8 for Felix. So that's a significant difference. Forehand, 7.9 to Purcell and 7.5 for Felix. So that's 0.4 plus side to Purcell, where Felix is really his strongest. So if Felix is not hitting his forehand better than his opponent, he's going to have a tough time because we know that backhand is going to be 
subpar most of the time. Felix at 6.6, quality of ball on the backhand side, and Purcell's 7.4. So almost a one-point advantage, 0.8, two Purcell on the backhand side, and Felix below average compared to the rest of the ATP Tour. And his backhand looks a little bit better than it did six months ago, but his team really needs to clean up that backhand side. It's at the point where the technique is going to start to interfere overall with his confidence, and I think obviously it already has. And when you lack confidence, it's extremely difficult to win, especially at this level where everybody's looking for any advantage that they can get. And then the next big upset that I saw, right, was Milos Raonic, Francis Tiafo. And I watched this match really closely and carefully. I was very interested in this just because Milos, right, making a comeback after some years off with injury, looking like he's trying to scratch his way back onto the tour. And the guy still has an incredible serve. And you know he's going to serve like that probably forever barring some crazy shoulder injury or something like that, right? So I'm watching this match very carefully. The serve was absolute fire from Milos. He's cranking serves, hitting big forehands, right? Hitting pretty good backhands too. And Francis is a very good returner. So that's one reason for me why I was so interested in the matchup is because I know Francis has extremely quick hands and he returns really, really well. So in terms of that, I was like, all right, will Francis be able to handle Milos's serve? And he handled it pretty well considering how big of a serve that is. Not a lot of guys can do really well against it. Some things that were interesting, right? Steal percentages for Francis. Obviously, he's a really good defender when he needs to be, but also a great attacker. He was at 33% steals, and Milos was actually at 27% steals, which is pretty surprising his number was that high when you don't think of him, obviously, as being someone who defends really well. Then we just look at quality of ball stats a little bit right here. On the serve, we expect this, but Milos at 9.2. ATP average is 7.5, so he's almost two full points above that average. Francis served really well. He was at an eight, right? And the average is 7.5. And then if we look at the return of serve quality, this is what threw me off. I didn't quite expect this number, but I guess it's because Milos does serve so well. But he was at 7.2 on the return of serve, and the average for the tour is 6.5. And Francis was at 6.1, just below average. But again, he's facing Milos's serve, right, which is pretty huge. If look at the ground strokes, Francis had a massive advantage anytime the points really started on the forehand side. Francis was at 8.1, tour average 7.2, and then Milos was at 5.9. So we're talking plus 2.2 to Francis, and we're talking forehand comparisons here. And then backhand, Francis at 7.3. And Milos at 6.7, so Milos below the tour average, a little bit up 7, and Francis a little bit above. So off the ground, Francis was absolute fire in this match, and it showed when they played longer or more extended points. You could see that he had significant advantages anytime you know this got into a ground battle, but Milos with that super strong serve just took advantage of that and used it over and over again. And we'll look at some deeper stats here real quick. So if we just look at the total winners, right, Milos 57 winners. Francis 25, Milos 42 errors unforced, Francis 24. And if we look at the winners on the serve, Milos hit 37 aces against Francis. So 37 out of his 57 winners were aces, which you'd expect. But I against Francis, I really didn't see him teeing up 37 winners, but he did that, so that's incredible. And then Francis, right, the breakdown, 11 forehand, 6 on the backhand, 8 on the serve. And for Milos, it was 16 on the forehand and four on the backhand. So that's pretty significant. But Milos was really going after the forehand. He had 26 unforced errors to his 16 winners. So minus 12 overall. But those serves, incredible. And if we just look at that here real quick, 
Again, unreturned serves. Milos had 63 unreturned serves in this match, and he hit 114 in. So more than half the serves that he was landing in the box in this match just simply weren't coming back. We take a little deeper dive into that, right? First serves in 57% for Ronich. 87% of those points he won when he made a first serve. And Francis, I consider to be a really strong return of serve, right? So very strong that way. Francis, 55% first serves in, 81% of those points he was winning. So he was doing a great job with his serve as well. And Francis is the one that was winning a higher percentage of his second serve points than Milos. He was at 66%. Second serves won, Milos at 56%. And then the last thing we'll just look at here real quick, guys, is the average speed. So Milos, 120 kilometers an hour on the forehand side. Average, 96 kilometers an hour on the backhand side. And Francis at 115 on the forehand side and just 99 on the backhand side. And Francis technically on the backhand side does have a little bit more of a shorter swing. It's not super elastic. He's really good on that side, but he doesn't typically get a ton of pace because the length on that stroke is a little bit lacking. So just technically the length on that swing can be a little bit lacking. Just moving into our next match and our last big upset before we talk finals. Tommy Paul versus Carlos Alcarez, and I watched this match really closely, watched the entire thing. In the back of my mind, no offense to Carlos, but when I was at USDA Player Development, Tommy was someone whose strokes got filmed a few times. His coach, Brad Stein, was someone I communicated with a lot. He's a very nice guy, great guy, super knowledgeable, and just super friendly guy. So I'm always rooting for Team Tommy Paul, just because Tommy's personality and Brad's personality as well. But either way, was rooting for them a little bit here. And one thing I found super interesting in this match was the slow courts kind of helping Tommy. I wasn't sure if it would help Carlos or not, being so fast and having such big shots. But if we look at the steal percentages in this match, we know Alcarez is an incredible defender, right? His steal percentage against Tommy, that defense to offense, 25% when he's behind in a point and then able to still come back and win it. And that number for Tommy was 24%. So he's just 1% behind Carlos when it came to stealing points that he had no business winning, right? When he's behind in the points. So Tommy's defense, a lot of people have really talked about his defensive skills and how quick he is. He's definitely coming to his own on tour as being a really good defender in the last, let's say, two years or one year. He's really turned into somebody that's just simply hard to get a ball by. When he played Giron, in an earlier round at the handshake at the net, Marcos kind of jokingly said it was it was a compliment, but he jokingly said, you know, it's really hard to get a ball by you. I couldn't get anything by you. And he kind of laughed, but you know, it's true because Tommy's defensive skills have really stepped up. Now, if we just look at the shot quality in this match, guys, right, we see Tommy winning the serve battle, 7.4 to 7.1. The return is served a slight edge to Carlos, 6.9 to 6.8. The forehand battle, which Alcaraz went nuclear on forehands, you know, in the past, especially Wimbledon, he hit the forehand very well. 7.4 to Tommy Paul versus 6.9 to Alcaraz. And then on the backhand side, it was Alcaraz 7.2 to 6.6. And I didn't really expect Tommy to win the forehand battle 7.4 to 6.9 by half a point. Definitely didn't expect that. Carlos was a little bit off on the forehand side in this match. But I'll say this too. Tommy hits a very heavy ball, especially on the forehand side. His forehand was helped tremendously by the slowness of either the balls or the courts, whatever it was. The ball just wasn't moving as fast as it was in some other events. That helps Tommy get through the beginning of his forehand technique. We sort of has kind of that limp wristed forehand technique. And if he gets caught on deep balls, he'll shank a lot of those balls or not hit them with solid contact. And that's something on his forehand I wouldn't mind seeing just a little bit of a technique change on his forehand side. 
But on a slower surface like this, he was able to get away with it, at least on the forehand side. He didn't pull this off against Sinner, who blasted him in the next round. The semis had a good match. It was competitive. But Sinner's pace, when I say blasted, it was really Sinner's pace that overcame Tommy. Carlos couldn't produce the same level of pace that Yannick does. So he wasn't able to break that forehand technique down on the slower surface. But Sinner was able to do it in the next round, right, in the semis. All right, so enough of the upset talk, right? We're through with the upsets. We got through my favorite upsets. I did skip Sitsipas versus Gael Monfils which is also a very big upset. But I also believe in that situation that the really slow courts really helped Monfils to upset Tsitsipas in this situation. Again, remember when Monfils first came on the tour, the courts were a lot slower and favored guys that played a lot of defense. And Monfils has sort of converted his game strictly away from that grinder defense mentality into a much more aggressive role. But back in the day, the courts were very, very slow and favored a defender's style. So I think for someone like Monfils, seeing a super slow court at this stage was something he loved to see, right? Gives him more time to set up, gives him more time to be super defensive, do things like counter you and frustrate you from the defensive side of the ball when you're being aggressive against him. So I think he really loved to see these super slow courts and he felt like he could do a lot of things defensively that he's not able to do as the courts and surfaces have really sped up over the last five to seven years. A lot of people had really complained over the course of time that courts were way too slow. Rallies were way too long. We had that final between, I think it was Djokovic and Murray. I might have the wrong year, but 2016 or 17 US Open where the rallies just seemed to be completely endless, right? And just never stop. Well, it, things have sped up and gone in reverse since that time and courts have definitely gotten a lot faster and players are playing more aggressive now than ever. So points have shortened up compared to back then. But I think Monfils was one of those guys that really benefited from the slowing down of the courts here in Toronto or the balls. Enough of the upsets, right? We went through a ton of upsets. Now let's get into the finals, right? Sinner versus Damon Auer. And this match, right? Demon coming in 0 for 4 head-to-head all-time versus Sinner. If you look at sets one to lost, if we include the most recent match, 13 to one favoring center overall. And the last time Demonauer got a set off a of center, I believe was 2020. So we're talking three years ago. He just doesn't have a favorable matchup against center. And there's different reasons for that, right? So if we look at those reasons, it really comes down to, again, this court surface. Daniil Medvedev, in an interview after his loss, I believe to Demon, basically said that he doesn't have the type of game style, and this is Medvedev talking, where he can hit through the court and aggressively go through the court and finish points. So he didn't like the court speed or the balls. I think he eventually mentioned the balls as being the main issue to him, that they were playing slower and this affected ability to finish points. Medvedev is one of those guys that needs help from the court to finish points when it comes to his ground game. It reminds me a lot in terms of style not build their actual physicality of Leighton Hewitt. Leighton Hewitt had a huge problem when he became number one in that 2001 to 2002 range where courts were still super fast and he grew up on faster surfaces. And then suddenly it seemed like in 03, 04, 05, they drastically slowed the courts down when Fed came on tour and then Rafa followed shortly after that. And Hewitt openly complained about court speeds being too slow and how it didn't help his game, right? So we kind of circle back to Sinner with this thought process. Sinner hits so gigantic on his forehand and his backhand. And I've covered his technique in two separate videos that have gotten a ton of views on YouTube, right? As far as his technique and why it's so effective and why it works. And people have tried to copy that and coaches try to coach it. But if you look at the speed in this match, right? 79 miles an hour on the forehand side for Sinner, 
75 miles an hour average on his backhand side. Nobody's hitting backhands as big as he is on the men's side. And then for Demenauer, right, 68 miles an hour average on the forehand side and just 63 miles an hour average on the backhand side. And if we go back for a second to the semifinals with Demenauer and Davidovich Vakina, apparently Davidovich Vakina wasn't feeling well. But at the same time during that match, if you watch that, Demenauer was basically just saying, I'm going to rally 50 balls per point. I want to see if you can hit through me. And Davidovich Vakina wasn't able to hit through him consistently. So he got frustrated. He didn't look necessarily well out there. It was super windy. The conditions were literally just perfect to basically grind on these slow courts where it's hard to hit a winner. And that's exactly what Dimenauer did. Walked off. I think the score in that match was one in three. It was kind of boring to watch because Demon really wasn't doing anything aggressively, not picking on him, just saying it was basically he was playing a human backboard in that match and Davidovich Fakina simply couldn't finish the points. But if we look at this match, right, with center... The courts really weren't favoring necessarily the super aggressive style. They were favoring more of the defensive style. We saw that play out throughout the week. We had all these different upsets that happened that we weren't used to necessarily on the men's tour. And Demon couldn't hit through center, but center could obviously hit through Demon. And a big improvement that center's made, and I'm about to make a technique video on this, but center changed his serve again, right? He changed the stance back from a platform stance back to a pinpoint stance. He also changed the take back, how he brings the racket back. He served well to me from his platform stance. I thought he did a great job with it. But if you look at the pinpoint now, he's not just changed the feet. He's also changed the take back. It's much more abbreviated again. And he seems to be having, you know, good serve success with that. But really at the end of the day, in this match, his ability to blast through Demon and Demon not able to do anything back to him was really the key to winning this match. If we look at it from that perspective, you can't just go, you know, plus 12 MPH on the backhand side versus somebody else and not have that be a significant advantage and go plus 11 on the forehand side, right? So we're just talking big MPH versus a lack of MPH versus Demon. And Sinner also, to his credit, was good enough on the defensive side where he could just sit back and rally if Demon wasn't giving him anything to work with. The first set I watched that, and I thought for moments that Demon had a chance to actually win that first set, right? We ended up going 6-4 there. He got back on serve from a breakdown. It was looking pretty good. He was looking, he was able to frustrate center just enough and chase down enough balls. But then Yannick sort of stepped it up and Demon started to slap shot a lot of forehands at Mach 5. And Demon's technique is not as good as Yannick's technique on that forehand side to generate the big pace. So once he started to try to inject this massive amount of pace, Suddenly he's making a ton of errors and then he's spraying balls out and then it became easy pickings more for Yannick. And for Sinner, right, he wins his first ever Masters 1000 event here in Toronto. And again, able to hit through those courts very effectively. So his ranking is going to go from eight in the world up to six. And I think in the live rank, as it could be wrong, he might be all the way up to four at this point. So he's looking really good in terms of his performance this year. He's only lost 11 matches on the year, made that run at Wimbledon in the semis there. Lost the Masters 1000 final earlier this year in Miami, right back in March. So he's done a really good job this year and had some very good results. And it looks like he's finally had his first big breakthrough, which is a credit to Darren Cahill and the rest of the team that works with Yannick. Also, Yannick seems to have one of the most level heads on tours. So that helps him tremendously and a great attitude. One thing that I think he really embodies is sort of this gratefulness attitude, right? Towards sport and what sport has given him. And I think that's a great thing to have when you're truly grateful for what you've been rewarded with for all of your hard work. 
So that's the first episode, guys, of the Breaking Point Down. We're gonna be doing this on a weekly consistent basis here on the Tennis Unleashed YouTube channel. I'm Jason Frosto for TennisUnleashed.net. Check us out, support the channel, like and subscribe. Do all of those things and you'll get more of these episodes on a weekly basis.